In your name, amen. This morning I want to highlight three things that we can draw from this passage. The first is that faith in Jesus amazes Jesus. Faith in Jesus amazes Jesus. makes him marvel. And what is meant by faith? Because it gets used um, in lots of different contexts, and sometimes people mean it, and mean it in a very dismissive way, and in other contexts, people use it as something to praise and value. So what, what is meant? Faith doesn't mean blind or unquestioning obedience. Faith doesn't mean certainty. Faith is not the opposite of doubt as if they sit on these two opposite ends. Doubt is the struggle to believe something, and doubt is different than unbelief. Belief, unbelief is this refusal to believe. You can have doubts, but still want to believe something, just not understand how it works, you're unsure. But unbelief is this unwillingness to believe something. See, the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's certainty, it's this seeking for control. The word that Jesus uses here when he talks, it says faith, in Greek is pistis. Generally, it just means like a conviction of the truth of anything. And another way of thinking of it is, uh, I think you'll see a slide for it, is just trust within an implication that, act, uh, that actions based on that trust may follow. There's this trust when it comes to faith. And this is just a broad understanding, right? And we're not talking necessarily about faith in a particular person or uh, religion. None of that. It's just what that word in Greek meant. This trust with an implication that the actions uh, based on that trust will follow. Now, when it comes to the Bible, specifically, there's this uh, faith is referencing then this conviction that God exists, that he's creator, ruler of all, provider, the giver of salvation through Jesus, the Messiah, God, the Son. And this is what Jesus came to bring about, is this kind of trust or faith. He came to bring about a real trust in him, belief in who he is and what he came to do is what he came to evoke. Relying on Jesus and his way to live your life is what he came to spark in humanity. Jesus' mission is to elicit a response of simple but real trust in him from you and from me. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus reject or redirect people's faith in him. There's nowhere where you will see him do that. See, when someone comes to us and they mistake us for someone we're not, what do we do? We try to correct them, right? We try to correct them, or eventually we get exposed. I remember when I was uh, one of two Alexes in a friend's group. The other Alex was in med school and had a new red Mustang. I was carless, and my major at the time could only be categorized as general studies. Pretty different. And I remember meeting someone that was connected to this group of friends and introduced myself as Alex. And their eyes lit up, and they looked at me and said, like, the doctor with the Mustang? And I'm like, no, (laughs) Carlos, general studies. (laughs) That is not me. I'm the other Alex. We correct that mistaken understanding, right? There's other times, though, where 
we, uh, we try to pretend to have an identity, right? There's a, I remember another time when I was a kid, there was a movie that was being filmed close to where I lived at the time, or at least to live down by Grandview Park off of Commercial, and they were filming a movie there at the park, and one of the key actors in that movie was Jean-Claude Van Damme. And I remember a group of my friends after school were hanging out by the park just trying to see who's there, what are they doing. And uh, as we were standing there, a staff member comes up to our group and asks me, are you the kid? And I'm like, am I the kid? I could, like, I could be the kid. What do I need to do? And it turned out they needed a, there was a child, I guess, actor who was supposed to have some lines with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And so I followed the, act, the staff member. He brings me through, and he brings me to someone. And I'm just kind of going along for the ride, like trying to see what will unfold through this. And they look at me, and they're like, he's not the kid. And I, I'm not the kid. You can only pretend for so long. In the Bible, when people bow before angels and begin to worship them, mistaking them for God or a divine being, they are always corrected. The angels will tell them, don't worship me, get up. When people mistake Paul and Barnabas as Greek gods worthy of worship in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas were told, tear their clothes and beg people not to worship humans, but to worship the living God. Yet when this happens to Jesus, he never does that. He never tries to suppress it. He never tries to tell people to stop. He never corrects it, telling them they've placed too much trust in him. They've mistaken his identity. Instead, he praises it. So when you read in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 26, Mary interrupts a dinner that she wasn't invited to, to come before Jesus and pour out her alabaster jar of perfume onto Jesus' feet. And she washes his feet with her tears, drying them with her hair. Jesus does not stop her. He doesn't interrupt her. He doesn't say it was wasteful, as others are thinking at that moment. Jesus doesn't say, don't worship me. Don't honor me. Honor God the Father. He doesn't say that. Jesus defends her extravagant act of worship. And he says to the group in the room, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. See, this is all part of what Jesus came to do. He came to draw out a response of reliance and trust in him from you and I. Because Jesus is no mere man. He's not pretending to be someone he isn't. He is the God-man. He is the living God come among us. He is the Son sent by the Father to make the Father known to the world. And so what gets revealed in Jesus isn't anything that is fake, but God himself in all of his goodness, beauty, power, truth, and glory. Which explains why Jesus will marvel when this centurion comes to Jesus expressing a magnificent amount of trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus is capable of and the kind of authority that Jesus has. And it's easy to miss if you're not familiar with the context. The centurion was an outsider. The man with leprosy who previously approached Jesus approaches him right before this social outcast. The man with leprosy lived on the outside 
on the margins of his society, but he was Jewish. This centurion was an outsider. He was not Jewish. He was what the Bible would call a Gentile, any ethnicity outside of a Jewish ethnicity. Therefore, he wouldn't have known the story of the Bible. He wouldn't understand the Old Testament law. He didn't know about God's salvation history, God's purposes for history. He didn't understand or know or abide by all of the purity laws that related to being a holy people set apart for God. And so because of that, he wasn't just an outsider. The centurion was also unclean. The Jewish leper was unclean, and so is the centurion. And these are the first two people who approach Jesus. Matthew wants you to see the kind of people that Jesus comes for. If this man, the centurion, had ever wanted to worship God in Jerusalem, the closest he could get was the farthest outer court of the temple in Jerusalem. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. He couldn't go any farther than that. But equally problematic, perhaps more problematic, is what the centurion symbolized. Because he was a national enemy. The centurion was an officer of the Roman Empire in charge of a hundred foot soldiers. He was the arm enforcing the empire's occupation of the land of Israel. Centurions symbolized everything that was against Israel's way of life, their beliefs, their worship, their freedoms. Centurions were despised. In other words, the centurion is not an insider. He's an outsider. He doesn't know much about God's redemptive plans. If he does know them, he's the one who knows them the least. And he's not a friendly. He's an enemy. His life appears to be opposed to God and his people, which makes what he says then so remarkable and what he does so remarkable. So remarkable, in fact, that Jesus can't help but be amazed because this man is a symbol of the imperial occupying force. And he comes to Jesus, and in this shocking reversal, he puts Jesus, the one from the conquered servile nation, so far above himself. One of the things this should teach us is that you don't have to have it all together or understand everything to come to Jesus. Now listen to how he addresses Jesus. Lord, Lord, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Lord is not a name. It's a title. It's a title expressing honor and reference. It's what a servant used to greet their master. Lord refers also to a sovereign. A Lord had power to decide what would happen with anything that belonged to him. Lord is the title given to God and to the Messiah. And what this centurion is saying then is ultimately... I am not the one in charge. You are. And someone I care about is suffering. He says, my servant lies at home paralyzed. There's actually a little bit of, a, of debate based on the word that's used about whether or not the centurion is actually saying my son is sick or it is his servant. But at the end of the day, this is someone under his care and someone he cares about and is powerless to heal. Now, how does this Lord respond to his subject, to the centurion who makes himself a subject of Jesus? Jesus says, I'll come to your home. The ESV renders this, I will come and heal him. All the man states at this point is a fact. He doesn't really petition Jesus, yet as soon as he approaches Jesus, Jesus is ready to come. 
Simply telling Jesus about our lives and our troubles apparently gets his saving grace moving. It's as if Jesus is saying, I don't know what others will say, but I want to come and help. The centurion responds, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. When you put your faith in Jesus, he praises it. He marvels. He delights in your trust. He smiles. He's amazed. When you put your trust in Jesus, you have the smile of God over you. Why? Why would Jesus be so delighted by this kind of trust? Because trust in Jesus is participation in the great reversal. Jesus came to reverse the tide of human rebellion and estrangement from God. He came to cleanse us from all of our sin, and he came to restore all things to God, including your relationship with him. There is no healing, no salvation, no forgiveness of sins, no freedom from shame, no new life, no resurrection with Christ without trust in Jesus. God made humanity to live rightly related to him, to others, to themselves, and creation. And the basis for that idea of being rightly related is trust. And Genesis 3 teaches that humanity would not entrust themselves to God and his ways. Instead, they would trust themselves. They would trust others. They would trust the voice of another not the voice of God. But Jesus, being the very nature of God, came and lived as one of us and became one of us. And he trusted God the Father even when it led him to the cross, which is why Paul will write in Philippians 2 that because of this, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When you entrust yourself to Jesus' care, when you entrust yourself to his teaching, to his way of relating to God, to relating with others, to relating to yourself and creation, you have entrusted yourself to the Lord, who is creator, sustainer, who knows how life works because he is the author of life. When you entrust yourself to Jesus' care, you have turned away from rebellion and estrangement, and you begin to experience the life that he and his Father intended for you. You begin to experience life in the kingdom of heaven here and now, and you begin to lay hold of the opportunity for new life that Jesus brings. That's why Jesus marvels at this man's faith. Because he doesn't know all of the promises of God that God made to Israel. He hasn't memorized the Torah. He isn't able, he's not abiding by God's law. He's supposed to be an enemy of God's people. Israel knew the promises of God. This guy doesn't know them. They're waiting for the Messiah. 
The centurion has a limited understanding. He lacks complete knowledge. He's an outsider, but he has a conviction. He has a conviction about who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. And that leads him to call Jesus Lord, saying, you don't even have to come into my home. All you have to do is say the word. You have that authority, Jesus. Which leads us to the second idea. Faith in Jesus releases the power of God. Faith in Jesus releases the power of God. Here's what this man and Jesus' response tells us. You don't have to know everything. This man was not the most theologically informed. He did not know his Bible the best. You don't have to understand how it all works. You don't have to have a spotless past. You don't have to be perfect right now. You don't even have to be well-liked by others. You just need to have a simple confidence in Jesus' word, that he really is Lord, meaning sovereign, the one who calls the shots, that he really is good, that he is worthy of your trust, and that he wants to help. And doing this delights Jesus. It amazes him. It makes him smile. It releases his power to save, to heal, to change, to restore your life and the lives of others. Look at verse 13. When Jesus says to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. From this place of trust in Jesus and reliance on him, Jesus will release his power. Jesus isn't even in the same room as his servant. Jesus doesn't even have to pray in that moment. He has the authority to just say it, to speak the word. And the centurion gets that. You don't even have to come with me. Just say the word and it'll be done, Jesus. Faith in Jesus becomes this channel through which Jesus' healing power touches the servant. Jesus is the healer, but his faith provides the means for it to change and heal his servant. Faith in Jesus amazes him. This willingness to believe that he is Lord. Faith in Jesus releases the power of God. And third, faith in Jesus grants us entry into the feast in the kingdom of heaven. This emphasis on faith is so vital to making sense of this warning that Jesus gives us in verses 11 and 12. And it's a warning for those who are listening. It seems like it kind of doesn't really fit. There's this whole encounter between Jesus and the centurion, and Jesus has this seeming kind of like sidebar. But he's speaking to those who are listening. And the early church, when they heard this, they took it as a warning for themselves, for the church. It's a warning to those of us in this room who would identify as followers of Jesus. So let's read what it says in verse 11 and 12. I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here. And so look, it says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What Jesus does is fast forward us in time to a future event. This feast in the kingdom of heaven is the celebration that will come at the end of history 
once the day of judgment has passed. Those who trusted God will celebrate with God in this great banquet party because God will have completely and decisively undone the effects of sin, evil, disarmed Satan, and defeated death. Israel believed the Messiah would bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. Jesus is the bringer of the kingdom of heaven. He is the Messiah. Jesus is Israel's long-promised and long-awaited king. He brings God's reign of justice, peace, love, and truth. And what Jesus is saying then is, many like this centurion from the nations, from the east and the west, people who aren't among the people of God right now, will come and take their place at this feast of hope and healing with me. There will be joy, laughter, and celebration because they trusted me with their lives like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. Their lives were marked by trust. They made me Lord of their lives, and over time they were transformed. But those who chose or choose not to trust me, he calls subjects of the kingdom, will be thrown out. Those are those who live and behold the Messiah, but don't believe in him. Those born to professing parents but fail to entrust themselves to Jesus as if they can rest on their parents' faith. They are those who look like they should be in when in reality they aren't because they've refused to entrust themselves to Jesus and his way. And Jesus says, you may be fooling yourself and others, but you're not fooling me. You don't trust me. You don't believe in me. And so you have no part in me and my kingdom. And you will be thrown outside to the darkness, and you'll experience immense regret. Now, the place that Jesus is talking about, this outer darkness, has different names in the New Testament, sometimes Gehenna or Hades, the darkness. It's what the church has historically called hell. And Jesus talks about it a lot in the Gospels, more than we care to admit or want to talk about. But here's the thing about each time Jesus brings up this topic. Whenever he does, it's always directed to insiders. He's talking to the subjects of the kingdom of heaven, which is why Frederick Dale Bruner will note all of Jesus' warnings about hell appear in messages to people who believe themselves heirs of the kingdom. Jesus doesn't preach hell to pagans, meaning those who just didn't uh, worship the God of Israel. He preaches it to those who think themselves believers. Hell is not so much a doctrine to frighten unbelievers as it is a doctrine to warn those who think themselves believers. What Jesus does is confront the pride that disfigures a community, making them so sure of themselves. Those who fail to see that this gift of salvation that they've been offered must be embraced. It's more than just a one-time decision. It's a lifelong trust in Jesus. What Eugene Peterson would call a long obedience in the same direction. It's not just our lives now, but eternity at stake. Without 
faith in Jesus, God the Son. It's impossible to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus wants those who are following him, those who are watching him close by, who are part of this audience, seeing what he is doing, to recognize you can't, you can't pretend. I'm not just a great teacher. I'm not just a wise rabbi. And there's this invitation for us to trust in him. So what can we do? Three things we can do. One is entrust your life and your ways to Jesus. And that is uh, a lot harder than it sounds. It's really easy to say. It's a lot harder to actually live out. Entrust your life and your ways to Jesus. Jesus comes and he announces that the kingdom of God has come in him. And he begins to describe what that looks like in the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of it, he calls people to build their lives on his words. And now you're going to see, as he descends off of this mount and begins to bring healing and show what the kingdom is like, he's going to call people to follow him, to place their trust in him. And it will cost you something. It always costs us something. And it doesn't just cost us something once. It feels like it costs us something every day. But any sacrifice you make on the way of Jesus is the bargain of your life. And it feels costly. It doesn't mean it's not costly. It's just in the eternal picture. You're like, it was worth it. It cost me everything, but it was worth it. That's why Jesus uses all these parables to talk about the treasure that is buried, that a man will sell everything he has to buy that land where the treasure was. It was worth it. But it costs us everything. When you make Jesus Lord, you belong to him. And remarkably, he gives himself to you. You have access to his resources, his help, his power. In fact, the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that empowered him for his ministry on earth, dwells in you. Entrust your life and your ways to Jesus. And one way you can simply do this is by daily asking him to help, for you to help him. For, sorry, my brain's not working. For asking for Jesus to help you trust in him, to trust him daily. There's so many different moments where we don't realize maybe until afterwards, wow, I actually wasn't operating from a place of trust. I was operating from a place of fear. Jesus wants us to live in a place of trust. Second, bring your needs to Jesus. The first two encounters we see as Jesus descends from the Sermon on the Mount are people coming with needs, and Jesus responds with this desire, this eagerness to help. Bring your needs to Jesus. The living God is deeply invested and interested in our lives, in our troubles, in our needs. It's as if Jesus is saying, call on my name and I will come running. You've got a friend in me. Jesus wants you and I to know that when we trust him, you have him. Faith in him is never rejected. Why? Because the act of telling him assumes he has the power to address and make changes. He can bring comfort to you, but he also has the power to bring change. Jesus has the power to revive your faith, to heal your marriage, your relationship with your kids, 
to heal how you see yourself, how you see yourself after having kids, how you see yourself in light of your singleness. Jesus has the power to help you and set you free from your battle with pornography. Jesus has the power to help you through and recover from your abuse of drugs. He has the power to help you with your eating disorder, with your habit of lying, deceiving others, to set you free from the shame and tendency of hiding it, to set you free from your anger issues, from your habit of judging people and gossiping about them. You can bring your needs, your failures, your weaknesses to him. And he is gracious and eager to help. One theologian and author I read wrote, faith mainly, asks, faith mainly talks to the Lord. It often hardly knows what to ask him or how to ask. Sometimes all one needs to do is state the problem. The how and the what of help are the Lord's business. You don't even know what you need help in or how the Lord can help you. You can bring those very issues and entrust your needs to him. The question is, will you entrust yourself and these issues to him or not? And third, bring the needs of others to Jesus. Because that's the other dynamic here. The centurion doesn't actually really bring his own needs. He brings the needs of someone he cares about before Jesus. And it's remarkable that Jesus honors this faith of the centurion. Because it's the faith of the centurion that leads to the healing of his servant. And it's the first example, I think, where Matthew gives us this picture of intercession, of someone coming to Jesus on behalf of someone else to ask for help. Whose needs are you aware of that you can bring before Jesus? Whose needs are you like uniquely aware of because of your position in life and the relationships you have that enable you to bring those very needs before Jesus? Your neighbor, your boss, your coworker, your classmate, your children's classmates, their teacher, your children, a nation reckoning with a civil war, with political division, a region devastated by earthquakes, a church in decline, a church navigating change, a nation or nations rather longing for healing and reconciliation, justice because they've been dispossessed of their land, separated from their families, forbidden to speak their native language. That kind of story has been repeated around the world in many different groups. There are so many different people and so many different groups whose needs we can personally bring before Jesus. Will you? The picture we're being given in this story is that Jesus is willing and desires to help. Will we put our trust in him and his ability? Because Jesus marvels at our steps of faith. He marvels when we call on him and trust and entrust ourselves to him. He marvels when we trust him so much that we obey him, following in his steps. And if we're willing to reach out and take hold of what Jesus offers us by following him, if we're willing to entrust ourselves to him, over time we will witness and experience a peace that surpasses all understanding. We will discover freedom from bitterness and shame. We will experience healing of deep wounds. We will see restoration of broken relationships. 
and we will experience the joy of God brimming within us because we've chosen to trust Jesus. The question for all of us in the room is, will, will we? Will we trust him? I want to give us an opportunity to do that in prayer. So I'm going to pray, bring us before Jesus, and then I just want to give you the opportunity to bring maybe something you are aware of in your own life or in the needs of someone else and entrust that situation to him. Jesus, we come before you. And we want to acknowledge, Lord, and entrust ourselves to you. We acknowledge that this week has been moments where we haven't trusted you. We've chosen to trust in ourselves, to trust in others. But we want to turn away from that now. And we want to ask for your forgiveness, which cleanses us of all of our sin. And we want to bring to you ourselves, our lives, needs of our, in our own life and the needs of others before you. Help us in our fears and anxieties. Lord Jesus, you have the power to help us. And so right now, we want to bring these things to you and ask for your help. So why don't you just take a moment to bring to Jesus anything that you are aware of that you need his help with. Lord Jesus, we give you these things, our own needs, the needs of others in our lives, and we entrust them to you, saying that you are good, Lord, you are trustworthy, and we don't know how everything's supposed to unfold, and even that sometimes makes us nervous, Lord. But we want to trust you with all that we have, Lord, with all of our lives. Help us to do that. And give us your peace, we ask, in your strong and mighty name. Amen.